The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Each business is unique and operated individually of others in the same industry. What they have in common is the potential path to success. Welcome to The Second Stage with your hosts, Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. In today's program, we'll address the obstacles that many businesses find on that path to success and discuss what entrepreneurs and their businesses are doing to stay ahead of the curve. Now, here is Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick. Good afternoon. This is Jeff Cadlick, and my tag team partner, Brendan Anderson, is off today, so you're going to have to deal with, with just me, but this is the second stage, and appreciate you joining us this afternoon. Uh, we've got a great show for you today, um, and we had a great show last week. Uh, last week's show is, was about employee benefit programs and how to assess your options. Our guest, Mark Samar, you know, walked us through some of his thoughts about um, – uh, you know, the benefit program uh, landscape, which is changing rapidly, particularly with regard to the Affordable Care Act uh, and the real shift in um, the cost of programs to employees. Those are two of the trends that he really spoke, uh, I think, quite a bit about. Uh, the other thing that he spent some time talking about was uh, you know, the, the transparency that's now required in these medical plans in terms of, you know, the, the, the providers sharing, you know, the cost of the service, being transparent about the cost of the service. And what that was causing was, you know, people were willing to travel to get to the low-cost provider since more and more of the cost of the service was now on the backs of, uh, of the employees. Um, and then a third thing that he touched on, which I thought was was very interesting, was the importance of offering good benefits to your employees and that it was really about retaining the good employees, making an investment in your company, uh, I guess is the way he put it, um, but that you know, as a broker, part of their job is to make sure that you are uh, um, getting the best deal, but also striking that right balance, making sure that you don't have too much or not enough, and that you 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 kind of have a a, a philosophical uh, position on on providing med- medical benefits uh, uh, to your your employees, and. You know, this is another one of those things that Brendan and I talk about a lot where it is pretty complicated and things change a lot. And and having somebody like Mark Samar of the Indemnity Group uh, walking you through this, we think, is is a very good uh, investment. They, they certainly help you with benchmarking uh, and benchmarking even within your industry to know, you know, where you stack up relative to your peers. So, again, please listen to that show if you haven't already. I thought it was uh, insightful uh, and it's a very, very fluid situation and it's a topic that we will probably probably uh, cover again 
Uh, the topic, you know, for for this week is common financial statement errors in small businesses, and that's something that we see a lot. Uh, the companies that that we invest in are are businesses that haven't yet been through the private equity process before, and as a result of that, we really only ask for a very little bit of information on the the front end of the process uh, before we get into what we call quality of earnings. And the things that we ask for in advance are historical financial statements. Uh, We ask them to go to our website at www.evolutioncp.com and there's a 10-question management assessment that we use really to help frame the discussion with the managers and um, and make that first conversation uh, go well and make sure that we get all the information on the table. And then we ask them to provide uh, projections. And oftentimes, uh, you know, we're really just looking at QuickBooks information with respect to the historical financial information and, and very summary information with regard to the, the projections. But we can really, from those three items come up with, uh, you know, a high-level valuation for the business. The, the next step after we agree on, uh, uh, you know, preliminary valuation for the business is we go into what we call quality of earnings. And that's where, you know, uh, Marlene Tihai, our CFO, and ourselves, uh, along with our, our uh, accounting support at some future uh, stage, will really look at the quality of the, the financial statements. Uh, if they claim to be making a million dollars, are they actually making a million dollars or are there mistakes in the representation of the financials that would suggest that they're either making $900,000 or possibly even making a, a million one? And I would say, uh, and I think Brendan would agree with me if he was here, that probably 75% of the time and even more, uh, there are errors in the financial statements from from a gap perspective, the generally accepted accounting principles. And, you know, we have to make a judgment call about whether that difference is material enough for us to, you know, re- revalue the business. So, that logic flow is really the genesis for the topic that we are are going to cover today. And once again, we've got a guest that we think is a an expert in this area. But before I get to uh, today's topic, I thought that uh, last week we wanted to introduce this whole concept of a small business uh, community roundup, where Brendan and I would talk about some of the things that that we've heard in the market over the 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 prior week, and uh, and also highlight what interesting articles that we have read uh, by other people in the community. Again, Brendan and I are always trying to learn, and we think that um, uh, part and parcel of that process is is reading what other people write, and and um, again contributing in in a blog or following up uh, in, in the conversation and contributing our our ideas as well. So because we're just getting rolling with this, I don't have anybody else's uh, information here. I know that sounds horrible where I'm sitting here highlighting things that I've done. I promise I won't do that each week. But uh, for this week, spare me. And I'm just going to talk about a couple things that I wrote about uh, recently and um, 
One of them had to do with the fact that the private equity valuations have really skyrocketed uh, in the last uh, year. And in fact, I wrote an article that was posted on January 29th, 2014 in Crane's Cleveland Business. And when I looked through the information that I got from PitchBook, which is a recognized leader in data collection for the private equity industry – uh, it did show that the valuations for businesses in the middle market – now, this is the market that's well above the market that Brent and I talk about day in and day out. But I think it's indicative of really what's going on in, in the, uh, the, the private equity market today um, – was that valuations had increased nearly 20% from 2012 to 2013, and that uh, a lot of that increase actually had to do with a higher increase in leverage, um, and and which means that banks were extending greater credit into these uh, mergers and acquisitions uh, transactions. The point of this article was that the last time we saw valuations as high as they are was in 2008, which of course was right before we slid off into the abyss and the, and the financial crisis. So I encourage you to check out the article. I obviously thought it was interesting because I wrote it, <laughs> but uh, I will let you uh, evaluate it on your own. I was also participated in in uh, a Fox Business News discussion regarding seller financing. And it was really kind of an interesting discussion because we don't obviously uh, need seller financing because we have our own private equity fund. But it really has been an important uh, tool used to bridge the gap and help transfer wealth from the the sellers or uh, from the buyers to the sellers. And a lot of the buyers, these small businesses – uh, don't have the wherewithal to finance 100% of the business like uh, an institutional buyer or a strategic buyer would. And so the four themes that we thought sellers should consider before you know, participating in, in a seller financing arrangement was you know, just being aware that you are essentially playing banker here and you have to learn how to underwrite a loan um, you know, to to the company that w- which is your company to help pay you back. Um, just being aware that you really have to uh, let your baby go. That this is not your baby anymore, and someone else is going to be running that business and may not necessarily be making the same business decisions as you would. Uh, helping with the successful transition of the ownership. Obviously, you have a vested interest, and does that mean that you would work uh, at the business part time or uh, uh, on a full time? Uh, basis to help with that transition and whether or not you should just think about maybe not striving for that last dollar and just taking uh, a lesser amount and and walking away and not having to worry about uh, all of that other stuff. And um, uh, that was, again, was on Lauren uh, Simonetti's Fox Business News uh, for for small business. And it was a real pleasure to be on the show. And uh, she has a lot of great topics uh, that uh, uh, I think would be helpful to to our listeners. Um, one last point before I move on to the end of our segment. Uh, 
you know, one of the great things I've learned recently, a friend of mine named Amy Gorman, she works for Salesforce. We were on a flight out to Dreamforce in November, and she told me a story that it really resonated with her regarding entrepreneurship, and it was called A Message to Garcia. And it's a, a story that you can actually download from iTunes for free, and I encourage you to do it. It only takes about 20 minutes to to, to to read, but the essence of the story is it goes back to the turn of the century during the Spanish-American War, which of course is when the United States helped the Cuban guerrillas uh, um, force the the Spanish off the the Cuban island. But one of the major players uh, in the Cuban island was. Uh, General Garcia, and we didn't have any relationship with him. We didn't know where to find him. Uh, we didn't even know what he looked like. But uh, we needed to let the General Garcia know that the United States was standing uh, behind the guerrillas. So President McKinley uh, found an enterprising captain by the name of Captain Rowan and said, get this message to Garcia. And uh, they dropped Captain Rowan off on the beach as of uh, Cuba. He disappeared for about two weeks, and then he reappeared and, uh, and had successfully delivered that message to Garcia. And the point of the story is uh, really that 99% of people can follow instructions, but very few can be told what the solution is and then figure it out. Uh, and in my mind, that is the essence of entrepreneurship is, is that you can never – entrepreneurship is not a straight line and you've really got to just figure it out. And that's what makes uh, entrepreneurship exciting. That's what makes learning constantly important. And um, uh, uh, again, only a very few are able to uh, endure all the uh, fits and starts of, of entrepreneurship. So I encourage you to go to uh, even my LinkedIn page. I will post a link to this article on either Amazon or iTunes. But it's a, it's a great story and a quick read and something that I think uh, symbolizes entrepreneurship. So with that, uh, our guest this week uh, for our show, which is – um, common financial statement errors in small businesses is a partner at McGladry named Roger Pro. And Roger's Hoosier from the great Hoosier state. Uh, he's been really in the accounting world since uh, graduating from college, uh, from Goshen College. Uh, he's a great golfer. I've golfed with him a few times. Uh, he kind of looks like an accountant in my mind's eye. And uh, uh, he's the guy that introduced me to Hendrix Gin, uh, which was an important discovery f for me. Um, and we always like to have a, uh, uh, a Hendrix Gin when we're going over my audit. Anyway, uh, with that, uh, we're going to uh, go into our first break here uh, in the show. But I always want to thank our sponsors, which is, of course, McGladry, and they're the leading provider of assurance, tax, and consulting services focused on small and mid-sized businesses nationwide with more than 6,700 people in 75 U.S. cities. With that, we're going to take our first break in the second stage and look forward to speaking with our guest, Roger Pro in a few minutes. Don't, uh, don't go away. Thanks much. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network this is davis love the third Ryder cup captain and team mcgladry member mcgladry is about building relationships that's the kind of team i want to be a part of 
a team that builds deep understanding of each client's vision and unique way of doing business. The same attributes I look for and the partners I choose. It's this understanding that enables you and me to make confident decisions. When you trust the advice you're getting, you know your next move is the right move. This is the power of being understood. This is McGladry. Assurance. Tax. Consulting. Game-changing technologies are transformational, exciting, and disruptive for a reason. They shake up the status quo. They get you thinking about new ways to scale, compete, and grow. They move you in amazing new directions. You're invited to take a coffee break with Game Changers on Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time for our special series on today's top big data innovators. Learn about emerging big trends and technologies and how you can grow your business and profit. Startup Focus with Game Changers, presented by SAP on the Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to The Second Stage. To reach the hosts or their guests today, call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to thesecondstage at evolutioncp.com. Now, back to Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. Welcome back to the show, The Second Stage. This is Jeff Cadlick, and my partner, Brendan Anderson, is off today. Um, like any forum, this show will be more effective and powerful if folks contribute their experiences and ideas. We invite you to continue the discussion from each week's show on our blog, which can be found at evolutioncp.com. And you can email us at the second stage at evolutioncp.com. We want to hear from you because being an effective small business owner is a continual path. And as your hosts, we have a lot of experience, but not all the answers. So we hope to hear from you, and uh, everybody can learn from from your your experience as well. Our guest this week is Roger Pro, partner at McGladry. And uh, for those folks out there that don't know, Roger actually is, in a way, my boss because he is the guy who actually approved the sponsorship of of the second stage and so he's the one that kind of helps us hang on by thread uh as we develop this show so uh roger thank you for being on the show we really appreciate all your support and look forward to your contributions uh to this conversation absolutely jeff we appreciate being a good corporate sponsor with you (laughs) and 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 we and as i said we appreciate it very much so roger you know in the first segment i talked about how we came up with this as a topic that you know we really go through some you know fairly uh you know high level diligence before we dig in on what i call the quality of of earnings analysis and that you know approximately 75 percent of the time when we get into these small businesses is, you know, there are, you know, uh, errors in the in the, the financial statements. Sometimes they're immaterial, sometimes they're material. But I thought a great conversation today would be to just kind of walk through some of the things that that you know we you typically see when you're looking at these small businesses, just to help them get you know clean clean numbers out there. Uh, and one of the first things that you and I had talked about was really revenue recognition and, and kind of the improper cutoff of, of, you know, revenue transactions. So, you know, what are the errors you commonly see with regard to uh, this issue? 
Yeah, definitely. You know, that's one of the common areas for small businesses that, you know, maybe is is not as cross, T's are crossed or I's are dotted um, that we typically see. It's it's commonly around the, you know, shipping terminology. You know, a lot of companies will have, whether they're a manufacturer or whatever they're doing, they might have, you know, FOB destination terminology written into their contracts, whereas, you know, they're recording their internal books, you know, on an, as the invoices are issued. So there might be a timing delay if you're shipping something from the East Coast to the West Coast of when it truly gets there. Uh, the revenue recognition in that criteria wouldn't be until it actually arrived because it was FOB destination. That's one common area, Jeff, that we see. Um, there's, there's also, as small businesses, you know, don't typically have sophisticated reporting packages. So maybe they're using a QuickBooks or something fairly insignificant in those Types of systems allow for backdating of entries that sometimes uh, have some issues from a revenue recognition criteria standpoint, where an entry from January gets posted to the prior year and things like that. So those are that's kind of from a revenue perspective. Mm-hmm. So what would be best practices in your mind, or doesn't it matter with regard to the shipping, you know, terminology and contracts? Do they do it as invoiced? Does that just make it a cleaner break, if you will? It- it definitely is. If, if most companies can do a, a FOB shipping point where, you know, as items leave the dock is when we can record the revenue and the risk of loss passes, you know, to the customer at that point and they have to carry the insurance burden, that's the easiest way to do it. Um, obviously, most, most companies can do some kind of a little analysis to determine if a day or two of potential items on the road, if they're FOB destination, how material that could be, you know, that's another area as well. We try and make sure, and especially from our perspective, that we, you know, whatever makes the most sense and doesn't hamstring, you know, the administrative side from our small businesses, we do audits and reviews for. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. So, you know, this is very interesting to, to so on, because I, I deal with accounting. I actually have an MBA in accounting, but if, uh, interestingly, I'm, I just, it just never perfectly clicks to me. So refreshing my, my skill sets all the time is, is, um, is always uh, welcome. One of the other topics we talked about was really just kind of the internal controls, you know, within these small companies and kind of segregation of duties, particularly uh, around cash-based businesses and, you know, the opportunity for fraud. So in what areas of a small company's internal control environment do you typically see segregation of duty issues? Certainly. The most common area is related to payroll, um, where we would have payroll checks being Maybe there's one, one HR person or, or a CFO or a controller doing all of the um, application of payroll and also administering check disbursements, um, adding new employees, uh, those types of things. So that's one common area that we always make sure we focus on with small companies. Um, also from the cash management side, um, supervision and review of payable disbursements, whether there's fictitious vendors you know, being set up and those types of things couple of common areas, and it is, you know, small businesses, very common to not have uh, an accounts payable clerk, a controller, a CFO, and, you know, maybe an owner, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And so I'm sure, you know, by making that observation that you've uncovered fraud as a direct result of a lack of segregation of duties. 
Yeah, you know, one of our uh, one of our tasks, fun audit, auditing world here for you, Jeff, is we are responsible for detecting material fraud, you know, insignificant fraud we design procedures for. But I actually did have one uh, one scenario where it was, like I told you from the payroll perspective, it was a ghost employee situation where the supervision and review of payroll reports uh, was was not being performed timely. So what we ended up having was multiple fictitious uh, employees set up with the addresses sent to an outside location, but it was e- pretty easy to find when we did a, an address search and five people lived at the same place. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so from a best practices perspective, uh, you know, what, what should a small business owner be doing? I think the answer is obvious, but just to state the obvious, Roger, what, what should they be doing with regard to segregation of duties? Certainly. I've always advised my small businesses to, it's worth the investment to have an outside payroll provider, um, just to simplify the complexities of payroll tax reporting, to also give you that internal control environment of they're the ones dealing with the direct deposits of checks and, you know, administering payroll um, a second one could be in-house, just making sure that uh, whoever's responsible for the financial reporting side of things is performing that review of uh, the payroll reports on a weekly or monthly basis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's very good advice. Um, another topic that you've got here, Roger, you know, it's interesting, you know, cash versus accrual-based accounting. And, you know, a lot of small businesses, when they get started, you know, they're, they are on cash basis because mentally it's easier for, for them to follow. Um, but, you know, they eventually should move into the accrual side. So, you know, what are some of the common accrual accounts that small companies seem to miss when closing, you know, their records for the year? Sure. A, a lot of those are, you know, payroll-related, but uh, where we specifically see it the most, you know, to be honest with you, Jeff, would be if there are estimates involved. So let's say it's a, an accrued warranty reserve or an accrued litigation accrual that might be necessary, those kind of one-off estimation-type things, um, not necessarily just the blocking and tackling of, of payroll and real estate taxes, but a lot of estimates are missed, whether it's insurance, uh, group insurance, or warranties and those and those types of things. So, in terms of estimates, is it that they just don't keep up on accruing or making sure that they've tested to, as to whether or not they've accrued for enough? Yeah, basically, just treat it on a cash payment basis. So, I'll use warranty as the example rather than uh, accruing the liability when the the particular part goes out, which is the gap requirement. They'll just treat it on a cash basis when the part comes back in and gets fixed. That's when they'll expense it at that point. Huh. Huh. And so uh, when you're trying to sell your company then, uh, how, how are these going to end up being issues? It, it definitely is an issue, and it's what uh, the due diligence teams are, are drilling into. Uh, inventory reserves, accounts receivable, bad debt reserves, Warranty reserves, those are areas we commonly see as addbacks. So when we're giving advice to, you know, whether it's the sell side or our small businesses, just to make sure that there's a good policy in place and there's something being tracked so that uh, you never want it to happen in due diligence. You know how that can go. <laughs> yes, yes. Sometimes we're very tolerant and not everybody is. Right. So, yep. 
Um, so another topic here is with regard to uh, recording equity-based compensation transactions. So this might be a little bit uh, complex, I think, for some of the people that we talk to. But how often do you see equity-based compensation transactions done and done properly on, on clients? It's it's becoming better, Jeff, to be honest with you. Um, when it first came out and some of the new pronouncements related to stock-based compensation came out, we, we saw it missed quite frequently. But uh, the, the new standards have basically just set it so it's pretty easy to calculate. But I, I caution people to make sure they're just looking out for if there are, you know, stock-based awards that are out there um, that maybe don't have in their minds uh, a, a large value. They might still want to consider... You know what's uh, what's the actual grant date fair value is the proper terminology to use. Uh, making sure that you have that taken care of because there's a lot of units issued. There's a lot of side agreements. We see a lot of warrants. We see quite a quite a few things going on, even in small small businesses. Yeah, and so one of those issues that you talked about was. Um, you know, grand date and fair value because, you know, the IRS gets involved here, right? So you know, do you recommend that small companies have evaluation performed on their stock annually? It, it, that's one of those things, you know, if, if on a private equity side, the year of a deal, obviously that kind of sets fair value. And we commonly just coach our clients, our small business clients into once you get about a year out from that date, uh, you might want to consider getting an, an updated valuation just to make sure that nothing majorly has changed. Uh, hopefully the, the company has grown and that fair value has increased, but that's typically what we advise you know, small businesses to do. So that way they're truly estimating grant date fair value pretty, pretty accurately. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, we, we need to take another brief break here, Roger, and we'll be back uh, shortly to continue our discussion around common financial statement errors in small businesses. Thanks for tuning into the second stage and we'll be right back. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. This is Davis Love III, Ryder Cup captain and Team McGladry member. McGladry is about building relationships. That's the kind of team I want to be a part of. A team that builds deep understanding of each client's vision and unique way of doing business. The same attributes I look for and the partners I choose. It's this understanding that enables you and me to make confident decisions. When you trust the advice you're getting, you know your next move is the right move. This is the power of being understood. This is McGladry. Assurance. Tax. Consulting. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to The Second Stage. 
To reach the hosts or their guests today, call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to thesecondstage at evolutioncp.com. Now, back to Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. Welcome back to the show, The Second Stage. This is Jeff Cadlick, and we're here with our guest, Roger Pro, partner of McGladry. Uh, and the topic this week is common financial statement errors in, in small businesses. And because of uh, there's so much to cover, I want to get right back into some of the things that, that we discussed in preparing for the show, Roger. And you know, the next thing that we that you and I talked about was utilizing depreciation methods for book purposes, including taking bonus in Section 179 depreciation. And this is actually a great um, thing for small businesses to know because the tax advantages of it. So, you know, when you see this on your client base, you know, what advice do you, do you give them? Yeah, you bet. This is this is one of those that's been really beneficial from the tax side of things for our small businesses and our large companies, to be honest with you, that, you know, taking bonus depreciation of up to 100% of uh, eligible assets in Section 179 up to the old rule was 250 to 500,000 in the past few years. Uh, so it, it is a big tax deduction. Uh, the one thing that you and I talked about, Jeff, is you kind of Small businesses sometimes forget that there's a different application for for the gap side of things for book purposes. So I do see on occasion where there's only one set of uh, depreciation records maintained and they're always on a tax basis. Well, from a a gap standpoint, uh, bonus depreciation and the 179 depreciation are uh, unfortunately not allowed. So I commonly just tell you know clients to make sure they're understanding of, of what their policies are and. And if they are going to do, use a tax methodology, they, they probably want to minimize their, their bonus and their 179 to avoid having a, a big adjustment from the book side. Yeah, there's actually a website uh, that I would encourage people to look for about you know Section 179 depreciation. I think if you Google that, there really is a great high-level discussion about how useful this can be and, 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 and really even as kind of a year-end tax preparation you know, process, um, which I think is, is, is neat. Um, so yeah, that's, absolutely. That's yeah, absolutely, Jeff. And, and unfortunately right now we haven't had the uh, extension of those bonus and 179 depreciation rules. So keep your fingers crossed that they'll retroactively put something out there. But as of now, um, your kind of bonus is a 50% now in section 179 is down to 25 grand. So it's, uh, we advised a lot of our clients to do some things in December if they could to take advantage of what potentially could be the last year of that. And and because this is such a great uh, tool uh, uh, for for business investment, just back up real quick. I mean, essentially, in my mind, this is really get you'd get tax credits in the form of accelerated depreciation for assets that that you buy. Absolutely, you're exactly right, Jeff. So. On the assets that you bought in December, you could take 100% of that depreciation, and let's say you're dealing with a small business S-Corp, you know, that goes directly to the shareholder at that point, and uh, whatever their tax rate is, that's the, the benefit they're receiving during that year. Had they not put that into service, then they wouldn't have got that deduction. So it, you know, it could be, you know, 30, 30, 40% deduction potentially to the shareholders. 
Yeah, and uh, that is a great, a great uh, uh, concept to incorporate as you're building your business. Um, I'm kind of surprised that we get this far into the conversation that we haven't talked about inventory, which is always a sticky <laughs> wicket uh, with any business. It certainly makes it more difficult for us to evaluate a business and how it's doing when they have inventory versus a service business. Um, and you talked about the valuation of labor and overhead and inventory for a manufacturing company. So what advice do you have for small manufacturing companies and trying to figure out how to value the labor and overhead components of inventory? Certainly, and it can be very challenging. Um, the, the best method is to have some pretty detailed records to do a, a specific analysis. You know, So on labor, you would actually track the amount of hours and personnel hours that go into making a specific part and develop your labor and overhead application based on some true results. Um, in most of our client base and most of the companies you're probably looking to buy, Jeff, you'll, you'll see that it's not that specific. So what we advise them to do in that case is, is, is take a look at it from a high level, you know, using the income statement, uh, whatever your labor rates are, and then whatever your overhead components are, and kind of applying those year-to-date results to the, the uh, labor and overhead and whip and finish goods inventory for a manufacturer. So that's kind of a, if you want to do an analytic kind of flyby, that would be my suggestion. But uh, the specific mm-hmm. methodology is uh, the more, more appropriate, and it'll give you better results. Mm-hmm. So what about uh, in terms of the labor component? I mean, are, are you looking for, for these small companies to do like a time study analysis or is this just kind of more, you know, uh, logic flow that you're looking for? The specific time studies are where we find that there's less true ups at the end of the year for labor inefficiencies. Let's call it that. So um, a time study is is always a good idea. Um, we also, from small business perspective, you know, time value of money. If it's if it's going to cause a lot of administrative uh, burden to the staff, we we probably wouldn't push that too hard. But that is one good way to go. Okay. Um, the next topic that we talked about was properly identifying intangible assets when when buying a company. Um, and so, what are the most common examples of intangible assets hidden? within a purchase agreement. And, and just so our folks understand, you know, the purchase agreement is really the main document that, that needs to be negotiated to, uh, you know, to, for, the, for the sale of the business, whether it's an asset sale or a stock sale. Uh, and that will be a future, future topic here on the second stage. But uh, I just thought I would throw that little bit in there, uh, Roger. Please go ahead. No, absolutely. It's the purchase agreement itself, you know, has a lot of terms and definitions. And what we found from a business buying perspective when they're acquiring companies is a lot of times the non-compete agreements that are maybe hidden back in section seven or eight or nine of the agreement um, are commonly uh, missed. And then if there happens to be any uh, intellectual property, uh, whether it's trade names or customer relationships, those are the, you know, common examples of intangibles we see that are broken out. Um, depending on the nature of the entity, there may be patents, there may be some other things, but you know, the, the couple that we see are the uh, information technology and the non-competes are the two main ones that we see missed when you're trying to do that allocation. Mm-hmm. And so can you talk just very briefly about the allocation process and 
um, you know, how to ascribe value uh, to to a non-compete, let's say? Sure. And, and to keep it as, as high level and pretty simple is theoretically yes, yes, there's, yes, there's yes. value um, to be uh, gained from having, you know, a former owner say that they aren't going to go and start up their own business. You know, maybe it's a two-year or a three-year non-competition agreement. Well, there might be some value of future revenues on a discounted cash flow methodology or, you know, or something like that where you can assign, you should be assigning some value to um, that non-compete that goes with the fact that they can't take the business and duplicate it on you. Would you place the value on the, the revenue or on their compensation or does it not matter? Um, it, it depends on how the agreement's written. Most of the time, it's it's based on the the compensation of that agreement. Got it, got it. Um, and then, uh, you know, one of the other things that's actually pretty interesting. It's also related, uh, I guess, to a certain extent in our eyes to the the M and A process. Was not fully understanding the debt covenant definitions in a loan loan agreement. Um, so. Again, it's probably intuitive here, but what are the potential ramifications to a small business if loan covenants aren't met? Unfortunately, it's one of those things that you know, maybe businesses aren't doing as well as they thought when they originally, you know, signed on with the bank. And you know, we see some banks that are pretty aggressive with some of these uh, these targets and these uh, covenants that are written in agreements. But you know, what I would advise my my companies and your your clients to do is just to make sure that they're being you know, it's consistent and forthright and forthcoming to the bank. And if they do miss one, you know, start the process of, you know, obtaining a waiver or see um, see what we can do to to smooth it out. Most banks are willing to work with people now. I think the credit uh, crunch is a little bit over from a lending perspective. But you know, the ultimate ramifications are, you know, the bank has the ultimate authority to to call that loan at that point once you're in default. So. Um, I've never seen that in my 16 years of practice, Jeff, but uh, that is a possibility. Do you think, and I, I have my own opinions about this, uh, but do you think that small business owners would, I guess, get some credit from their lender if they're aware of the challenge uh, and that they're going to break a covenant at some point in the future as opposed to retroactively just saying, oh my gosh, you just realized I broke this covenant. Uh, you would say, hey, look, based on what I see coming down you know, the, the line here in the next six months, I think in month five and six, I'm going to break this covenant. Would you mind? You know, this is how I'm going to solve the problem. You know, can I get a waiver? I mean, do you feel like you get some credit by doing it the, the latter way? Definitely, definitely. And if you, if you wait until it's a reactionary period is what I tell my clients, that's when they can uh, say, well, yeah, I'll do that for you, but I'm probably going to have to increase your rate by you know, 25 basis points or 50 basis points. I find if you're forthright and, and kind of proactive with your financial statement forecast and kind of let them know it's coming sooner, they appreciate that and might not go with that, uh, call it the hand flap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so obviously, have you ever seen a bank not work with a small business when they uh, encounter that loan covenant violation? Maybe more so if it's they noticed it after the fact as opposed to, you know, in advance? I, to be honest with you, Jeff, I, I haven't. I've seen a couple of what are called forbearance agreements, you know, that are written that really tighten up the, the lending terms and give them a, a certain time frame to get out and get back into compliance, but I've never really seen it uh, pulled immediately and 
and, and starting going into the foreclosure and the uh, bankruptcy process. Mm-hmm. Hey, we only have about a minute here, but I did want to ask you about these new private company pronouncements that's, that have come out, uh, one of which had to do with uh, you know testing for uh, goodwill, which I thought would be of particular interest to uh, small companies. Sure, and it definitely is. It's uh, the, the private company standards came out from FASB just recently. I think January 16th was the date to provide a little bit of relief uh, to treat private companies truly how they are as private companies and not public entities. So what they're allowed to do is they're allowed to amortize goodwill for book purposes now um, over a 10-year or less period as they determine that is necessary. And what that does is that saves money for private companies in doing valuations and impairment testing and you know, really gives them a little bit of flexibility to not have to have that outside person helping them out. And and that is that is a big deal. Uh, obviously, if, particularly if you have to write down goodwill and how that flows through the financial statements um, versus what the private company pronouncements allow you to do, it's uh, it's it's very very helpful and a, and a nice nice break as it should be in my opinion anyway uh roger thank you for your your time as our guest on the show uh you you're as always a great help and uh, your insights i think will be uh, very valuable to our listeners so thanks for being on the show and we're going to take a, a pause again for a short break and we'll be back uh to to uh, kind of share our final thoughts about today's topic thanks for tuning into the second stage America Business Network, the bottom line in business. This is Davis Love III, Ryder Cup captain and Team McGladry member. McGladry is about building relationships. That's the kind of team I want to be a part of, a team that builds deep understanding of each client's vision and unique way of doing business. The same attributes I look for and the partners I choose. It's this understanding that enables you and me to make confident decisions. When you trust the advice you're getting, you know your next move is the right move. This is the power of being understood. This is McGladry. Assurance. Tax. Consulting. The way we do banking today continues to evolve. No longer is it just brick and mortar locations or traditional bankers hours. Today, banking is 24-7. It's in the home. It's on the go. It's digital. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how traditional banking as we know it has changed due to a loss of trust, changing economic conditions and consumer behavior, government involvement, and of course, technology. What does it all mean? Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into the sec- that um, uh, part and parcel of that process is is reading what other people write and and um, again contributing in in a blog or following up uh, in, in the conversation and contributing our our ideas as well. So f- because we're just getting rolling with this, I don't have anybody else's uh, information here. I know that sounds horrible where I'm sitting here highlighting things that I've done. I promise I won't do that each week. But uh, for this week, spare me. And I'm just going to talk about a couple things that I wrote about uh, recently. And um, 
One of them had to do with the fact that the private equity valuations have really skyrocketed uh, in the last uh, year. And in fact, I wrote an article that was posted on January 29th, 2014 in Crane's Cleveland Business. And when I looked through the information that I got from PitchBook, which is a recognized leader in data collection for the private equity industry, uh, it did show that the valuations for businesses in the middle market – now, this is the market that's well above the market that Brent and I talk about day in and day out. But I think it's indicative of really what's going on in, in the, uh, the, the private equity market today um, – was that valuations had increased nearly 20% from 2012 to 2013. And that uh, a lot of that increase actually had to do with a higher increase in leverage, um, and, and which means that banks were extending greater credit into these uh, mergers and acquisitions uh, transactions. The point of this article was that the last time we saw valuations as high as they are was in 2008, which of course was right before we slid off into the abyss and the, and the financial crisis. So I encourage you to check out the article. I obviously thought it was interesting because I wrote it, <laughs> but uh, I will let you uh, evaluate it on your own. I was also participated in uh, a Fox Business News discussion regarding seller financing, and it was really kind of an interesting discussion because we don't obviously uh, need seller financing because we have our own private equity fund, but it really has been an important uh, a tool used to bridge the gap and help transfer wealth from the the sellers or uh, from the buyers to the sellers, and a lot of the buyers, these small businesses. Uh, don't have the wherewithal to finance 100% of the business like uh, an institutional buyer or a strategic buyer would. And so the four themes that we thought sellers should consider before, you know, participating in, in a seller financing arrangement was you know, just being aware that you are essentially playing banker here and you have to learn how to underwrite a loan um, you know, to, to the company, that w- which is your company, to help pay you back. Um, just being aware that you really have to uh, let your baby go, that this is not your baby anymore and someone else is going to be running that business and may not necessarily be making the same business decisions as you would. Uh, Helping with the successful transition of the ownership, obviously you have a vested interest and does that mean that you would work uh, at the business part-time or uh, uh, on a full-time basis to help with that transition and whether or not you should just think about maybe not striving for that last dollar and just taking uh, a lesser amount and and walking away and not having to worry about uh, all of that other stuff. And um, uh, that was, again, was on Lauren uh, Simonetti's Fox Business News uh, for, for small business. And it was a real pleasure to be on the show. And uh, she has a lot of great topics uh, that uh, uh, I think would be helpful to, to our listeners. Um, one last point before I move on to the end of our segment. Uh, 
you know, one of the great things I've learned recently, a friend of mine named Amy Gorman, she works for Salesforce. We were on a flight out to Dreamforce in November, and she told me a story that it really resonated with her regarding entrepreneurship, and it was called A Message to Garcia. And it's a, a story that you can actually download from iTunes for free, and I encourage you to do it. It only takes about 20 minutes to to, to to read, but the essence of the story is it goes back to the turn of the century during the Spanish-American War, which of course is when the United States helped the Cuban guerrillas uh, um, force the the Spanish off the the Cuban island. But one of the major players uh, in the Cuban island was. Uh, General Garcia, and we didn't have any relationship with him. We didn't know where to find him. Uh, we didn't even know what he looked like. But uh, we needed to let the General Garcia know that the United States was standing uh, behind the guerrillas. So President McKinley uh, found an enterprising captain by the name of Captain Rowan and said, get this message to Garcia. And uh, they dropped Captain Rowan off on the beach as of uh, Cuba. He disappeared for about two weeks, and then he reappeared and, uh, and had successfully delivered that message to Garcia. And the point of the story is uh, really that 99% of people can follow instructions, but very few can be told what the solution is and then figure it out. Uh, and in my mind, that is the essence of entrepreneurship is, is that you can never – entrepreneurship is not a straight line and you've really got to just figure it out. And that's what makes uh, entrepreneurship exciting. That's what makes learning constantly important. And um, uh, uh, again, only a very few are able to uh, endure all the uh, fits and starts of, of entrepreneurship. So I encourage you to go to uh, even my LinkedIn page. I will post a link to this article on either Amazon or iTunes. But it's a, it's a great story and a quick read and something that I think uh, symbolizes entrepreneurship. So with that, uh, our guest this week uh, for our show, which is – um, common financial statement errors in small businesses is a partner at McGladry named Roger Pro. And Roger's Hoosier from the great Hoosier state. Uh, he's been really in the accounting world since uh, graduating from college, uh, from Goshen College. Uh, he's a great golfer. I've golfed with him a few times. Uh, he kind of looks like an accountant in my mind's eye. And uh, uh, he's the guy that introduced me to Hendrick's Gin, uh, which was an important discovery f for me. Um, and we always like to have a, uh, uh, a Hendrick's Gin when we're going over my audit. Anyway, uh, with that, uh, we're going to uh, go into our first break here uh, in the show. But I always want to thank our sponsors, which is, of course, McGladry, and they're the leading provider of assurance, tax, and consulting services focused on small and mid-sized businesses nationwide with more than 6,700 people in 75 U.S. cities. With that, we're going to take our first break in the second stage and look forward to speaking with our guest, Roger Pro in a few minutes. Don't, uh, don't go away. Thanks so much. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network this is davis love the third Ryder cup captain and team mcgladry member mcgladry is about building relationships that's the kind of team i want to be a part of 
a team that builds deep understanding of each client's vision and unique way of doing business. The same attributes I look for and the partners I choose. It's this understanding that enables you and me to make confident decisions. When you trust the advice you're getting, you know your next move is the right move. This is the power of being understood. This is McGladry. Assurance. Tax. Consulting. Game-changing technologies are transformational, exciting, and disruptive for a reason. They shake up the status quo. They get you thinking about new ways to scale, compete, and grow. They move you in amazing new directions. You're invited to take a coffee break with Game Changers on Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time for our special series on today's top big data innovators. Learn about emerging big trends and technologies and how you can grow your business and profit. Startup Focus with Game Changers, presented by SAP on the Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to The Second Stage. To reach the hosts or their guests today, call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to thesecondstage at evolutioncp.com. Now, back to Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. Welcome back to the show, The Second Stage. This is Jeff Cadlick, and my partner, Brendan Anderson, is off today. Um, like any forum, this show will be more effective and powerful if folks contribute their experiences and ideas. We invite you to continue the discussion from each week's show on our blog, which can be found at evolutioncp.com. And you can email us at the second stage at evolutioncp.com. We want to hear from you because being an effective small business owner is a continual path. And as your hosts, we have a lot of experience, but not all the answers. So we hope to hear from you, and uh, everybody can learn from from your your experience as well. Our guest this week is Roger Pro, partner at McGladry. And uh, for those folks out there that don't know, Roger actually is, in a way, my boss because he is the guy who actually approved the sponsorship of of the second stage and so he's the one that kind of helps us hang on by thread uh as we develop this show so uh roger thank you for being on the show we really appreciate all your support and look forward to your contributions uh to this conversation absolutely jeff we appreciate being a good corporate sponsor with you (laughs) (laughs) and 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 we and as i said we appreciate it very much so roger you know in the first segment i talked about how we came up with this as a topic that you know we really go through some you know fairly uh you know high level diligence before we dig in on what i call the quality of of earnings analysis and that you know approximately 75 percent of the time when we get into these small businesses is, you know, there are, you know, uh, errors in the in the, the financial statements. Sometimes they're immaterial, sometimes they're material. But I thought a great conversation today would be to just kind of walk through some of the things that, that you know, we, you typically see when you're looking at these small businesses just to help them get, you know, clean, clean numbers out there. Uh, and one of the first things that you and I had talked about was, really revenue recognition and, and kind of the improper cutoff of, of, you know, revenue transactions. So, you know, what are the errors you commonly see with regard to uh, this issue? 
Yeah, definitely. You know, that's one of the common areas for small businesses that, you know, maybe is is not as cross, T's are crossed or I's are dotted um, that we typically see. It's it's commonly around the, you know, shipping terminology. You know, a lot of companies will have, whether they're a manufacturer or whatever they're doing, they might have, you know, FOB destination terminology written into their contracts, whereas, you know, they're recording their internal books, you know, on an, as the invoices are issued, so there might be a timing delay if you're shipping something from the East Coast to the West Coast of when it truly gets there. Uh, the revenue recognition in that criteria wouldn't be until it actually arrived because it was FOB destination. That's one common area, Jeff, that we see. Um, there's, there's also, as small businesses, you know, don't typically have sophisticated reporting packages. So maybe they're using a QuickBooks or something fairly insignificant in those Types of systems allow for backdating of entries that sometimes uh, have some issues from a revenue recognition criteria standpoint, where an entry from January gets posted to the prior year and things like that. So those are that's kind of from a revenue perspective. Mm-hmm. So what would be best practices in your mind, or doesn't it matter with regard to the shipping, you know, terminology and contracts? Should they do it as invoiced? Does that just make it a cleaner break, if you will? It- it definitely is. If, if most companies can do a, a FOB shipping point where, you know, as items leave the dock is when we can record the revenue and the risk of loss passes, you know, to the customer at that point and they have to carry the insurance burden, that's the easiest way to do it. Um, obviously, most, most companies can do some kind of a little analysis to determine if a day or two of potential items on the road, if they're FOB destination, how material that could be, you know, that's another area as well. We try and make sure, and especially from our perspective, that we, you know, whatever makes the most sense and doesn't hamstring, you know, the administrative side from our small businesses, we do audits and reviews for. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. So, you know, this is very interesting to, to someone because I, I deal with accounting. I actually have an MBA in accounting, but if, uh, interestingly, I'm, I just, it just never perfectly clicks to me. So refreshing my, my skill sets all the time is, is, um, is always uh, welcome. One of the other topics we talked about was really just kind of the internal controls you know, within these small companies and kind of segregation of duties, particularly uh, around cash-based businesses and, you know, the opportunity for fraud. So in what areas of a small company's internal control environment do you typically see segregation of duty issues? Certainly. The most common area is related to payroll, um, where we would have payroll checks being Maybe there's one, one HR person or, or a CFO or a controller doing all of the um, application of payroll and also administering check disbursement, um, adding new employees, uh, those types of things. So that's one common area that we always make sure we focus on with small companies. Um, also from the cash management side, um, supervision and review of payable disbursements, whether there's fictitious vendors you know, being set up and those types of things couple of common areas, and it is, you know, small businesses, very common to not have uh, an accounts payable clerk, a controller, a CFO, and, you know, maybe an owner, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And so I'm sure, you know, by making that observation that you've uncovered fraud as a direct result of a lack of segregation of duties. 
Yeah, you know, one of our uh, one of our tasks, fun audit, auditing world here for you, Jeff, is we are responsible for detecting material fraud. You know, insignificant fraud we design procedures for. But I actually did have one uh, one scenario where it was, like I told you, from the payroll perspective, it was a ghost employee situation where the supervision and review of payroll reports uh, was was not being performed timely. So what we ended up having was multiple fictitious uh, employees set up with the addresses sent to an outside location, but it was e- pretty easy to find when we did a, an address search and five people lived at the same place. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so from a best practices perspective, uh, you know, what, what should a small business owner be doing? I think the answer is obvious, but just to state the obvious, Roger, what, what should they be doing with regard to segregation of duties? Certainly. I've always advised my small businesses to, it's worth the investment to have an outside payroll provider, um, just to simplify the complexities of payroll tax reporting, to also give you that internal control environment of they're the ones dealing with the direct deposits of checks and, you know, administering payroll um, a second one could be in-house, just making sure that uh, whoever's responsible for the financial reporting side of things is performing that review of uh, the payroll reports on a weekly or monthly basis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's very good advice. Um, another topic that you've got here, Roger, you know, it's interesting, you know, cash versus accrual based accounting. And, you know, a lot of small businesses, when they get started, you know, they're, they are on cash basis because mentally it's easier for, for them to follow. Um, but, you know, they eventually should move into the accrual side. So, you know, what are some of the common accrual accounts that small companies seem to miss when closing, you know, their records for the year? Sure. A, a lot of those are, you know, payroll-related, but uh, where we specifically see it the most, you know, to be honest with you, Jeff, would be if there are estimates involved. So let's say it's a, an accrued warranty reserve or an accrued litigation accrual that might be necessary. Those kind of one-off estimation-type things, um, not necessarily just the blocking and tackling of, of payroll and real estate taxes, but a lot of estimates are missed, whether it's insurance, uh, group insurance, or warranties and those and those types of things. So, in terms of estimates, is it that they just don't keep up on accruing or making sure that they've tested to, as to whether or not they've accrued for enough? Yeah, basically, just treat it on a cash payment basis. So, I'll use warranty as the example rather than uh, accruing the liability when the the particular part goes out, which is the gap requirement. They'll just treat it on a cash basis when the part comes back in and gets fixed. That's when they'll expense it at that point. Huh. Huh. And so uh, when you're trying to sell your company then, uh, how, how are these going to end up being issues? It, it definitely is an issue, and it's what uh, the due diligence teams are, are drilling into. Uh, inventory reserves, accounts receivable, bad debt reserves. Warranty reserves; those are areas we commonly see as addbacks. So, when we're giving advice to you know whether it's the sell side or our small businesses, just to make sure that there's a good policy in place and there's something being tracked, so that uh, you never want it to happen in due diligence. You know how that can go. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Sometimes we're very tolerant, and not everybody is. Right. So, yep. 
Um, so another topic here is re- with regard to uh, recording equity-based compensation transactions. So this might be a little bit uh, complex, I think, for some of the people that we talk to. But how often do you see equity-based compensation transactions done and done properly on, on clients? It's it's becoming better, Jeff, to be honest with you. Um, when it first came out and some of the new pronouncements related to stock-based compensation came out, we, we saw it missed quite frequently. But uh, the, the new standards have basically just set it so it's pretty easy to calculate. But I, I caution people to make sure they're just looking out for if there are, you know, stock-based awards that are out there um, that maybe don't have in their minds uh, a large value. They might still want to consider... You know what's uh, what's the actual grant date fair value is the proper terminology to use. Uh, making sure that you have that taken care of because there's a lot of units issued. There's a lot of side agreements. We see a lot of warrants. We see quite a quite a few things going on, even in small small businesses. Yeah, and so one of those issues that you talked about was. Um, you know, grand date and fair value because, you know, the IRS gets involved here, right? So you know, do you recommend that small companies have evaluation performed on their stock annually? It, it, that's one of those things, you know, if, if on a private equity side, the year of a deal, obviously that kind of sets fair value. And we commonly just coach our clients, our small business clients into once you get about a year out from that date, uh, you might want to consider getting an, an updated valuation just to make sure that nothing majorly has changed. Uh, hopefully the, the company has grown and that fair value has increased, but that's typically what we advise you know, small businesses to do so that way they're truly estimating grant date fair value pretty pretty accurately. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we, we need to take another brief break here, Roger, and we'll be back uh, shortly to continue our discussion around common financial statement errors in small businesses. Thanks for tuning into the second stage, and we'll be right back. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. This is Davis Love III, Ryder Cup captain and Team McGladry member. McGladry is about building relationships. That's the kind of team I want to be a part of. A team that builds deep understanding of each client's vision and unique way of doing business. The same attributes I look for and the partners I choose. It's this understanding that enables you and me to make confident decisions. When you trust the advice you're getting, you know your next move is the right move. This is the power of being understood. This is McGladry. Assurance. Tax. Consulting. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to The Second Stage. To reach the hosts or their guests today, 
Call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to the second stage at evolutioncp.com. Now, back to Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. Welcome back to the show, The Second Stage. This is Jeff Cadlick, and we're here with our guest, Roger Pro, partner of McGladry. Uh, and the topic this week is common financial statement errors in, in small businesses. And because of uh, there's so much to cover, I want to get right back into some of the things that, that we discussed in preparing for the show, Roger. And you know, the next thing that we that you and I talked about was utilizing depreciation methods for book purposes, including taking bonus in Section 179 depreciation. And this is actually a great um, thing for small businesses to know because the tax advantages of it. So, you know, when you see this on your client base, you know, what advice do you, do you give them? Yeah, you bet. This is this is one of those that's been really beneficial from the tax side of things for our small businesses and our large companies, to be honest with you, that, you know, taking bonus depreciation of up to 100% of uh, eligible assets and Section 179 up to the old rule was 250 to 500,000 in the past few years. Uh, so it, it is a big tax deduction. Uh, the one thing that you and I talked about, Jeff, is you kind of Small businesses sometimes forget that there's a different application for for the gap side of things for book purposes. So I do see on occasion where there's only one set of uh, depreciation records maintained and they're always on a tax basis. Well, from a, a gap standpoint, uh, bonus depreciation and the 179 depreciation are uh, unfortunately not allowed. So I commonly just tell you know clients to make sure they're understanding of, of what their policies are and. And if they are going to do, use a tax methodology, they, they probably want to minimize their, their bonus and their 179 to avoid having a, a big adjustment from the book side. Yeah, there's actually a website uh, that I would encourage people to look for about, you know, Section 179 depreciation. I think if you Google that, there really is a great high-level discussion about how useful this can be and, 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 and really even as kind of a year-end tax preparation you know, process, um, which I think is, is, is neat. Um, so yeah, that's, absolutely. That, that, yeah, absolutely, Jeff. And, and unfortunately right now we haven't had the uh, extension of those bonus and 179 depreciation rules. So keep your fingers crossed that they'll retroactively put something out there. But as of now, um, your kind of bonus is a 50% now and section 179 is down to 25 grand. So it's, uh, we advised a lot of our clients to do some things in December if they could to take advantage of what potentially could be the last year of that. And and because this is such a great uh, tool uh, uh, for for business investment, just back up real quick. I mean, essentially, in my mind, this is really get you'd get tax credits in the form of accelerated depreciation for assets that that you buy. Absolutely, you're exactly right, Jeff. So. On the assets that you bought in December, you could take 100% of that depreciation, and let's say you're dealing with a small business S-Corp, you know, that goes directly to the shareholder at that point, and uh, whatever their tax rate is, that's the, the benefit they're receiving during that year. Had they not put that into service, then they wouldn't have got that deduction. So it, you know, it could be you know, 30 percent deduction, potentially, to the shareholders. Yeah, and, and uh, that is a great... 
a great uh, uh, concept to incorporate as you're building your business. Um, I'm kind of surprised that we get this far into the conversation that we haven't talked about inventory, which is always a sticky <laughs> wicket uh, with any business. It certainly makes it more difficult for us to evaluate a business and how it's doing when they have inventory versus a service business. Um, and you talked about the valuation of labor and overhead and inventory for a manufacturing company. So what advice do you have for small manufacturing companies and trying to figure out how to value the labor and overhead components of inventory? Certainly, and it can be very challenging. Um, the, the best method is to have some pretty detailed records to do a, a specific analysis. You know, so on labor, you would actually track the amount of hours and personnel hours that go into making a specific part and develop your labor and overhead application based on some true results. Um, in most of our client base and most of the companies you're probably looking to buy, Jeff, you'll you'll see that it's not that specific. So what we advise them to do in that case is is, is take a look at it from a high level, you know, using the income statement, uh, whatever your labor rates are, and then whatever your overhead components are, and kind of applying those year-to-date results to the, the uh, labor and overhead and whip and finish goods inventory for a manufacturer. So that's kind of a, if you want to do an analytic kind of flyby, that would be my suggestion. But uh, the specific mm-hmm. methodology is uh, the more more appropriate, and it'll give you better results. Mm-hmm. So what about uh, in terms of the labor component? I mean, are, are you looking for, for these small companies to do like a time study analysis or is this just kind of more, you know, uh, logic flow that you're looking for? The specific time studies are where we find that there's less true ups at the end of the year for labor inefficiencies. Let's call it that. So um, a time study is is always a good idea. Um, we also, from small business perspective, you know, time value of money. If it's if it's going to cause a lot of administrative uh, burden to the staff, we we probably wouldn't push that too hard. But that is one good way to go. Okay. Um, the next topic that we talked about was properly identifying intangible assets when when buying a company. Um, and so, what are the most common examples of intangible assets hidden? within a purchase agreement. And, and just so our folks understand, you know, the purchase agreement is really the main document that, that needs to be negotiated to, uh, you know, to, for, the, for the sale of the business, whether it's an asset sale or a stock sale. Uh, and that will be a future, future topic here on the second stage. But uh, I just thought I would throw that little bit in there, uh, Roger. Please go ahead. No, absolutely. It's the purchase agreement itself, you know, has a lot of terms and definitions. And what we found from a business buying perspective when they're acquiring companies is a lot of times the non-compete agreements that are maybe hidden back in section seven or eight or nine of the agreement um, are commonly uh, missed. And then if there happens to be any uh, intellectual property, uh, whether it's trade names or customer relationships, those are the, you know, common examples of intangibles we see that are broken out. Um, depending on the nature of the entity, there may be patents, there may be some other things, but you know, the, the couple that we see are the uh, information technology and the non-competes are the two main ones that we see missed when you're trying to do that allocation. Mm-hmm. And so can you talk just very briefly about the allocation process and um, you know, how to ascribe value 
to to a non compete, let's say. Sure, and, and to keep it as as high level and pretty simple is theoretically yes, there's yes, there's yes, value um, to be uh, gained from having you know a former owner say that they aren't going to go and start up their own business. You know, maybe it's a two year or a three year non competition agreement. Well, there might be some value of future revenues on a discounted cash flow methodology, or you know, or something like that, where you can assign. You should be assigning some value to um, that non-compete that goes with the fact that they can't take the business and duplicate it on you. Would you place the value on the the revenue or on their compensation, or does it not matter? Um, it, it depends on how the agreement's written. Most of the time, it's it's based on the the compensation of that agreement. Got it. Got it. Um, and then. Uh, you know, one of the other things that's actually pretty interesting, it's also related, uh, I guess, to a certain extent in our eyes to the, the M&A process is not fully understanding the debt covenant definitions in a lo- loan agreement. Um, so, <laughs> again, it's probably intuitive here, but what are the potential ramifications to a small business if loan covenants aren't met? It- Unfortunately, it's one of those things that uh, maybe businesses aren't doing as well as they thought when they originally, you know, signed on with the bank. And you know, we see some banks that are pretty aggressive with some of these uh, these targets and these uh, covenants that are written in agreements. But you know, what I would advise my my companies and your your clients to do is just to make sure that they're being, you know, as consistent and forthright and forthcoming to the bank. And if they do miss one, you know, start the process of. You know, obtaining a waiver or see um, see what we can do to to smooth it out. Most banks are willing to work with people now. I think the credit uh, crunch is a little bit over from a lending perspective. But you know, the ultimate ramifications are you know the bank has the ultimate authority to to call that loan at that point once you're in default. So um, I've never seen that in my 16 years of practice, Jeff. But uh, that is a possibility. Do you think, and I, I have my own opinions about this, uh, but do you think that small business owners would, I guess, get some credit from their lender if they're aware of the challenge uh, and that they're going to break a covenant at some point in the future as opposed to retroactively just saying, oh my gosh, you just realized I broke this covenant. Uh, you would say, hey, look, based on what I see coming down you know, the, the line here in the next six months, I think in month five and six, I'm going to break this covenant. Would you mind, you know, this is how I'm going to solve the problem. You know, can I get a waiver? I mean, do you feel like you get some credit by doing it the, the latter way? Definitely, definitely. And if you, if you wait until it's a reactionary period is what I tell my clients, that's when they can uh, say, well, yeah, I'll do that for you, but I'm probably going to have to increase your rate by you know, 25 basis points or 50 basis points. I find if you're forthright and, and kind of proactive with your financial statement forecast and kind of let them know it's coming sooner, they appreciate that and might not go with that, uh, call it the hand flap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, obviously, have you ever seen a bank not work with a small business when they uh, encounter that loan covenant violation? Maybe more so if it's they noticed it after the fact as opposed to, you know, in advance? I, to be honest with you, Jeff, I, I haven't. I've seen a couple of what are called forbearance agreements, you know, that are written that really tighten up the, the lending terms and give them a, a certain time frame to get out and get back into compliance, but I've never really seen it uh, pulled immediately and, and and starting going into the foreclosure and the uh, bankruptcy process. 
Mm-hmm. Hey, we only have about a minute here, but I did want to ask you about these new private company pronouncements that's, that have come out, uh, one of which had to do with uh, you know testing for uh, goodwill, which I thought would be of particular interest to uh, small companies. Sure, and it definitely is. It's uh, the, the private company standards came out from FASB just recently. I think January 16th was the date to provide a little bit of relief uh, to treat private companies truly how they are as private companies and not public entities. So what they're allowed to do is they're allowed to amortize goodwill for book purposes now um, over a 10-year or less period as they determine that is necessary. And what that does is that saves money for private companies in doing valuations and impairment testing and you know, really gives them a little bit of flexibility to not have to have that outside person helping them out. And and that is that is a big deal. Uh, obviously, if, particularly if you have to write down goodwill and how that flows through the financial statements um, versus what the private company pronouncements allow you to do, it's uh, it's it's very very helpful and a, and a nice nice break as it should be in my opinion anyway uh roger thank you for your your time as our guest on the show uh you you're as always a great help and uh, your insights i think will be uh, very valuable to our listeners so thanks for being on the show and we're going to take a, a pause again for a short break and we'll be back uh to to uh, kind of share our final thoughts about today's topic thanks for tuning into the second stage America Business Network, the bottom line in business. This is Davis Love III, Ryder Cup captain and Team McGladry member. McGladry is about building relationships. That's the kind of team I want to be a part of, a team that builds deep understanding of each client's vision and unique way of doing business. The same attributes I look for and the partners I choose. It's this understanding that enables you and me to make confident decisions. When you trust the advice you're getting, you know your next move is the right move. This is the power of being understood. This is McGladry. Assurance. Tax. Consulting. The way we do banking today continues to evolve. No longer is it just brick and mortar locations or traditional bankers hours. Today, banking is 24-7. It's in the home. It's on the go. It's digital. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how traditional banking as we know it has changed due to a loss of trust, changing economic conditions and consumer behavior, government involvement, and of course, technology. What does it all mean? Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to The Second Stage. To reach the hosts or their guests today, call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to thesecondstage at evolutioncp.com. Now, back to Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. 
Welcome back to the second stage. This is the final segment on our show uh, for common financial statement errors in small businesses. We had our guest, Roger Pro from Agladry on the line, and I thought his answers were, were great. I thought he uh, had picked some very good topics uh, uh, for for discussion, and I think that a lot of those uh, would be universal uh, in in many of the businesses that uh, that are out there. Um, two in particular, may, maybe less so, the Section 179 depreciation and the uh, valuation of labor and overhead and inventory might apply a little bit more to um, manufacturers as opposed to business services. But uh, very, very interesting information. As I had said in the uh, second segment, I actually have an advanced degree in accounting, and, and unless you keep up with it day in and day out, it, uh, you know, it can be a challenge. I guess I do keep it up with it day in and day out, but uh, not uh, down to the granular level. So anyway, you know, this uh, falls right into you know the first pillar of the five pillars of business freedom, and you'd heard my partner Brent and I talking about the five pillars of business freedom and and prior shows. We did a whole series on the five pillars, which are uh, and in this order: great financials, uh, uh, having a plan in place, uh, hiring the right people. Uh, being transparent with your employees and letting them know how they fit into the entire system of providing value to your customers. And then finally is uh, accountability, holding your uh, employees uh, to a certain standard and and making sure they know what it is. Um, But the, the foundation for your business has to be good financials and collecting good data and having it in a timely manner so that it can help you think about your business proactively and not retroactively. We see a lot of these businesses where they've outsourced their uh, financials to their uh, an accounting firm that's you know three months behind. And I know that some small businesses can be run with a little bit of gut feel but uh, I think you're doing yourself a disservice in terms of uh, good, solid decision-making based on, on data and, again, helping you build that plan and then kind of getting into the five pillars of business freedom. So I would encourage you very much to really focus on that issue, and uh, hopefully this this show went a long way to um, uh, improving your understanding of that. And I do go back to um, our guest probably a few months ago now, a guy named Greg Crabtree. He was the author of a book called Simple Numbers and an Accountant Himself, and a book that that I would encourage anybody uh, to go uh, buy. It's, uh, it's a great book. I've read it. It's an easy read. But it really talks about uh, being honest with yourself in your numbers, and uh, I think that's a little bit about what what uh, Roger was talking about today. Um, you you got to make sure you have good, clean numbers. Be honest with yourself about the numbers to provide a true reflection of uh, of how you are doing, not only to yourself but importantly to your lenders. Uh, you know, my view of lenders is is uh, as an entrepreneur, they may not always be the most understanding, dynamic people out there, but I think you you they deserve to have good, timely, accurate data. They deserve to get information from you because they've got money in the deal too. 
and I think you can earn their respect. And candidly, you get a longer rope if you uh, are transparent with them and that you give them uh, advanced warning if, uh, if problems uh, do arise. And look, let's face it, in any small business, problems do arise. It's just, uh, you know, it's the way it is. Um, you know, as a small business owner myself, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't like surprises, but they're, they're inevitable. And it kind of gets back to my, um, my talking point in the first segment about, uh, uh, a message to Garcia and the essence of entrepreneurship in my mind is knowing what the solution has to be and just figuring it out, uh, you know, between where you are today and, and where you have to go. And I think a lot of that has to come from pushing yourself both personally and professionally. I mean, this show is a perfect example of, of pushing yourself professionally. Was I confident after doing this show for months now that uh, I could handle doing the show on my own without my partner, Brendan? I was, but it certainly is a lot easier when you've got somebody uh, very capable like Brendan on the show that's able to add some uh, additional color to, to the conversation. So uh, again, pushing myself professionally. And I think that for those people that stop learning and stop pushing themselves professionally and personally are really the the first you know to to lose uh, particularly in business today where things move move so quickly my father who's been re- retired now for uh, 10 years uh, he was staying at my house a few weeks ago and I was on the phone doing business all morning long on Saturday morning and he's he was just amazed at you know business just kind of is business and your personal life are kind of one and the same thing today where he said back in the day you You'd shut your brain off at five o'clock on Friday and wouldn't turn it on again until eight o'clock on on Monday. So with that, um, I want to remind everybody that uh, we uh, have a show every every Monday at five o'clock Eastern two two o'clock Pacific. We appreciate you dialing in. The show is about uh, best practices and uh, and hopefully you're you're learning as we learn uh, each week. So with that, I want you to have passion for possibilities. Think about uh, what your business can be. Don't think about what it is today. With that, I'm going to sign off the second stage this week and appreciate you tuning in. Thanks for listening to second stage. Thank you for tuning in this week to The Second Stage. Please join Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson again next Monday afternoon at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And have a successful week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.